don't know if you're going to be able to see this. Um, but does anyone know what I'm holding in my hands? Can anyone tell what this is? Joe might have an idea. What did you say? So you don't know the English yet. Emma, Emma knows it. It is a fig. It is a fig. Do you notice a difference between the two? It's might, uh, this might be too far to try this. <laughs> One, if you can believe it from where you're sitting, is a good fig. The other has been sitting out most of the week, and it's not a good fig. I would not recommend anyone eat this one. But this one is a good fig. I promise I will clean this up after, afterwards. In Jeremiah 24, God gave Jeremiah a vision of two baskets holding figs, just like what I was holding up. One basket was a fig of really good a fig. One basket was full of really good figs. The other was full of bad figs, really bad. You would not want to eat them. And this happened, this vision came to Jeremiah during the year 597. Now, for all of y'all that are not into history, uh, this is not going to be a year that like really speaks to you, but this happened to be the first year where Jerusalem, uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and took away some people from Jerusalem. So he took away King Jehoiachin, he took away some of the leading officials, prominent people in the land, and took them off. So this is what was going on at, at that time. And he had set up in place of this King Jehoiachin, he'd set up his uncle, this is, this is Nebuchadnezzar had done this, kind of a puppet uh, king that would be in the land named Zedekiah. So this was Jehoiachin who had been taken to Babylon. This is his uncle and he's there. And he gives this picture of good figs and bad figs. So when you think about it, there's a group that's been taken off into exile to Babylon. And then there's a group that stayed. So as you think about this, which one, which group signifies the good figs and which group signifies the bad figs? But before we answer that, I want to give you a quick tour of how God has worked from the beginning to grant his people a place. Place is very important to God. From the very beginning, God has always blessed his people with a physical place that he has prepared and gifted for them. From the dawn of creation, we see God created man and woman in his image, and he blessed them, and he gave them a garden that he had designed specifically for them. And from there, they were to be fruitful and multiply. They were to fill the earth and subdue it. They were to know God and reflect what he was like to all the earth. And so God's presence was with them there in that garden of Eden. He was there and they had both a purpose to keep it and to reflect what God was like and all these other commands and they had pleasant things to see and taste that reminded them again of God's goodness. So every good and perfect gift was a reminder of their loving father who walked among them. And in their rejection, as we know, they, they did not stay for long in that place of paradise because they rejected God. They doubted his goodness for them. They doubted his love for them and they decided to eat what he said not to eat when they, he had given them everything else to enjoy and eat. They ate the one thing and so they quickly lost Eden and their designated place with him. 
Then outside the presence of God and that place he had began a a great wandering away from their purpose to know God and reflect what he was like, to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. They began to wander away from their purpose. The people's hearts reflected less and less their maker and more and more wickedness. In fact, it says in, in Genesis 6 that they thought of only wickedness continually in their minds. And the great flood was God's judgment and it meant a total loss of the land God designed for all creatures and those made in his image to dwell in. Through the flood, the land was cleansed. But after the flood, a new and the new creation that God did up after it, people continued to wander by seeking to create their own purpose, their own place, their own identity for themselves outside of God's design. This ended in disaster with the unfinished city at Babel and bewilderment and the confusion of the language. But God pulled a man named Abram from the chaos following those times and promised him some outrageous blessings. He promised him he was going to make him into a great nation and make his name, Abram's name, great. This great God is going to make his name great. And he promised him he would bless those who blessed him and protect by cursing those who cursed him and then gave this great promise. All the peoples of the earth would be blessed through his family. But he also, he also gave him a land. He promised him a land that he was going to give him. Abraham's family would be given this land. It would be a home base from which this blessing to all the nations would spread. Though God brought Abram to the land he intended, he did, of course, fulfill his promise. Abram never set up a permanent residence in that land. And years after God's great promise to him, the still childless Abram, he was able to faithfully believe God's promise that he was going to have descendants that would number the stars, even when he hadn't had one yet. He was able to believe that. But when God promised him he would possess the land where he was currently sojourning, it was at that moment that Abram needed a bit more assurance. And so God told Abram to set up a covenant ceremony. And we read about this. In that day, they would set up covenants between a great king and a lesser king, and they would take animals and they would split them. I know this is gruesome, but this is, this is what they did. They would take animals and they would split them in two. And then, um, so God had Abram do this. And then God promised them um, some amazing things. He said that his, uh, his future family would, would be here, his descendants that they'd be servants before they got here. They'd be servants in a foreign land and that God was going to judge the land that was enslaving them and they were going to come out with great possessions and then they were going to settle in this land. They were going to come back into this place, but he was going to wait till the evil had risen up to its highest point. And to seal and guarantee this promise, normally the lesser king would walk through the pieces of the animals that have been split. And this would be an idea of if you don't, if the lesser king didn't do his side of the bargain, then this would be the result that would happen to him as they walk through the animals. But in this case, God does something very different. God Almighty passes through the divided animals in a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch. 
God was going to make good on this promise. And God did indeed keep his word as he always does. Through many signs and wonders, we know he brought the people out of Egypt uh, just a number of years later, as he said, and the people were given the promised land. God wanted for them. But instead of serving as a light to the nations around them and filling the earth with his truth and goodness, again and again, Israel turned their backs on God over and over and over again. And even when they had kings, the best of them still went their own way and openly rebelled against God's fatherly love. So finally, God does send off a group of them, as we just talked about, 597, into exile, in an initial exile. But just as the first journey to Egypt wasn't to destroy God's people, the exile to Babylon doesn't serve as their defeated end either. So getting back to the fig question, which group of people are the good figs and which are the bad? God's message in Jeremiah 24 that we read is that the group he's actually taken off away from the land into exile are the good figs. It doesn't mean that God, it, and, and what it says by good here is God regarded them as good. So don't be confused. This doesn't mean that they were good. It, it means that he looked on them. He set his eyes on them. For good. He was determined to do good to them in spite of what they deserved. And so his promises in verse 6 of chapter 24, I will bring them back to this land. And he says this, I will build them up and not uproot them. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with their whole heart. The bad figs did not fare as well. They included Zedekiah and the rest, and the king of Judah and his officials, leftover people of Jerusalem who remained there. And some of them even went to the land of Egypt. God promised he would send sword and famine and pestilence upon this group until they would be utterly destroyed from the land that he gave them and their fathers. So this is pretty unexpected. You would think the good figs are the ones that were able to remain in the place that God had designed for them. And the bad figs were the ones taken off. But God spends uh, the next eight chapters through Jeremiah explaining kind of the purpose behind why he said what he said. And so to give us a little context of where we are, we're in 32, but to, to get from 24 to 32, I'm just going to give you a brief Brief summary of what this looks like. So before that first exile and the vision of the figs in 597, we learned God had sent Jeremiah to the actual temple courts. And there he pleaded with the people to listen to God, to turn from their sin. They had fallen into idolatry. They'd fallen into all these, all these wicked things of the nations around them. And Jeremiah was pleading with them to turn or else the place where they were, this holy city of Jerusalem was going to turn into their old capital that had been destroyed. It was going to be just like Shiloh. And what happened when Jeremiah did that? Well, it almost cost him his life because people were not happy to hear that, one, he was saying their enemies were going to come and take them off and that the place where God had made his name to dwell in his temple was going to be taken over. So he barely escapes with his life. But then later he, he continues 
um, to, to give us more of an insight of what's going on here. So he says, there's going to be this king, Nebuchadnezzar, who's going to come. And this king is going to be the one that God is going to call, as, as wild as this is, God is going to call him his servant. This foreign king. And this one is one who is going to be able to take over peoples of the world. And God is raising him up to do this. And so anyone that doesn't bow the knee to this Nebuchadnezzar and serve him is going to be taken. They're going to be taken over and their homeland is going to be destroyed. And so you can imagine this was not a popular message again to hear, but Jeremiah does even in, de- even in destruction and judgment, he gives hope. He says in 70 years, God has given him a limited time where he's going to be able to take his people. And in 70 years, they're going to be able to come back. And God is actually going to judge Babylonians. And so he tells them all these things. And then uh, these false prophets begin to come in. And so the king Zedekiah, who, you know, as far as he's concerned, nothing wrong has really happened to him. There's some problems now in Babylon. It's been a while since the exiles were taken. So he's, he's starting to feel good about things. And he's got a lot of yes men and people around him that are saying, yeah, the worst is behind us. Don't worry about this. In fact, you know what? We can, we can guarantee we're going to be okay because we're going to go to the Egyptians and begin to work with them, some alliances. We don't need to worry about this Nebuchadnezzar, and we definitely don't need to listen to Jeremiah. And so the false prophets, these, these positive prophets, I'll call them, started saying over and over, in two years, God's going to break the yoke of Nebuchadnezzar. All the people are coming back. This is the way it's going to be. And so Jeremiah confronts, he confronts these prophets. He confronts King Zedekiah. And he tells him and reminds him, no, Nebuchadnezzar is actually God's servant. God is using him. And anyone who goes against God's servant is going to be destroyed. You need to repent. You need to repent. Stop relying on everyone else around you and turn back to God. This is what needs to happen. And then if the, to make matters worse, those prophets weren't just prophesying there in Jerusalem, they were actually going and sending this false message to the exiles, giving them this false hope. You know, in two years, you're going to be coming back to the land. Things are going to be great. Everything's going to be fine. And so Jeremiah writes a letter to the exiles and he tells them, this is going to be 70 years. This is going to be a long time. This is going to be difficult. But I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good to give you a future and a hope. Those words that we like to see on our coffee mugs and in our houses, those are written to exiles. People that had a long road to go before they saw those promises come. And yet God was going to be faithful. But he was telling them, don't believe the hype. Trust God. Trust God where you are. So then, in 30 to 31, we're almost almost to our text. In 30 and 31, there is a great promise that God is going to restore his people to the land. He's going to do this. And then he gives some amazing promises in the new covenant of verse 31. He says, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. I'll no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest for I'll forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. And so it's at this point 
after promises like this that the story picks up in chapter 32. This is where we'll spend the rest of our time this morning. And so fast forward now, in your mind, 10 years. This is Zedekiah um, is now 10 years into his reign. On the 11th year, he's going to be taken out, just so you know. But he's in year 10. Nebuchadnezzar is coming again hard against Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is locked up. You can imagine why. He's locked up for saying some pretty unpopular things in the day. No one wanted to hear about their nation was about to be taken by the biggest enemies they had. No one wanted to hear about Nebuchadnezzar was God's servant. But this is what Jeremiah was saying. It was the truth of God. And so he's been locked up in the court of the garden. And at this moment, he gets this weird, strange message of what's coming to him from, from God. And the message is, you're going to have a cousin. By the way, he's not in great relationship with a lot of his family at this point. But the message was, you're going to have this cousin who is going to tell you, go and buy this land. I've got some land for you. And guess where this land is? This land is in Judah. This land is right outside of Jerusalem. He's like, go buy this land and redeem it. Now, this is a really weird thing. Why would you buy land in a place where you're in the very land your country is about to be destroyed and taken over? But this is the message. And so he, he sees this vision, and then immediately, he knows this is of the Lord, because immediately his cousin comes walking up, and he asked him to buy this land. So Jeremiah, not understanding, not getting it, obeys God, realizes this is of God, and he obeys him, and he buys land in the country that he knows is about to be destroyed. He buys this land. And so he says this wonderful prayer. He says this wonderful prayer in 32. He calls out God for his, his majesty, how God is over everything, how he's mighty, how he has all this wisdom, how he's able to raise up people by a sovereign hand and, and lower them. He, he shares all these wonderful things about God. And he says at the end, after he said this, it's a legitimate prayer. And then he says, but God, I know that you see what's coming. He says these words here. You, what you spoke has come to pass and behold, you see it. Talking about Nebuchadnezzar and the siege ramps that are coming up against the city. And then Jeremiah says this, yet you, O Lord, have said to me, buy the field for money and get witnesses that you bought it. Though the city is given into the hands of the Chaldeans. So he just honestly, he, he praises God for who he is. He praises God for what he knows about him. And then he honestly just puts out the situation in front of God for God to answer. And God does answer. And so our scripture, we're, we're main part of our sermon today is God's answer to Jeremiah's prayer. God's answer. And so what I want you to see from this, I hope that you'll see this, is that God responds in the same way he responded in the last eight chapters that we breezed through, and that is God responds with both judgment for sin and abundant grace and restoring hope for sinners. So our big point this morning, our good father defeats evil and joyfully promises restoration. Our good father defeats evil and joyfully promises restoration. So in the remaining time, we've got three parts. The first part, our righteous father defeats evil. Second part, our good father joyfully promises restoration. And the third part, there is only one way bad figs can be regarded as good. So our righteous father defeats evil. 
Our good father joyfully promises restoration. And third part, there's only one way bad figs can be regarded as good. So first, the righteous father defeats evil. This is coming from verses 26 to 35. And I got to say, originally, I was not going to include this in the sermon. I was, I was so overcome by the amazing promises, these amazing promises we're going to be talking about in the second half. Uh, but I was convicted that I, I was skipping over a part that needed to be said. And the Holy Spirit, and the reason is the Holy Spirit moved Jeremiah to write this part of God's response to remind people everywhere of the fullness of who God is. We must, we must see God as both holy, just, and righteous, and merciful, gracious, and abounding in love. We must hold God to all these things together. So a steady refrain of scripture is that Yahweh, the one true living God, is that he's gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. That is the part that we love. That's the part that we hold on to and say, yes, but he will by no means clear the guilty. That's what it says next. Repaying the guilt of fathers to children. So this is due to, uh, when it says repaying the guilt of fathers to children, this is due to their own children continuing in the sins of their father. And so God the Holy One who's completely spotless in his nature, set apart from all his creatures. He's righteous in all his thoughts, his plans, his words, his actions. He is the definition of all that is good and right in this broken and dark world. This is who God is. And as such, he is the one and the only righteous and just judge of the universe, of our world and all his creatures. And he reminds us of his rightful place for judgment by telling Jeremiah that he is the Lord, the God of all flesh. And then he repeats back in question form what Jeremiah stated before. Is anything too hard for me? So God is going to show how he is both this just judge and this amazingly merciful father at the same time. And so after this, here's what God says. He tells Jeremiah his plans that only God himself could pull off. He starts by saying he plans for justice sake toward the city of Jerusalem and children of Israel. And he tells them why he is um, bringing judgment to them. He's, he tells them what he's been promising actually all along, that he has given this city into the hands of the inhabitants of Babylon and their king Nebuchadnezzar. Not only will they capture the city, but they're going to burn this city, the city of God, the city that God had built for them. He's going to burn it with fire. And a specific part of this blaze that he points out will be this. It says, the houses on whose roofs offerings have been made to Baal and drink offerings have been poured out to other gods. So he's burning the places where there's been outright, complete rebellion to God by, on their roofs, they're setting up these idols and bowing down and worshiping right in the face of God. They know what they're doing, and they're not even trying to hide it. So this is part of what God is saying is, is invoking his, his anger. It's this brazen rebellion. 
And so Yahweh com- communicates the unfaithfulness of the people from, from the start, when he rescued them from Egypt and planted them in the land in this great faithfulness. He speaks of the evil of the city itself and its citizens from top to bottom in full disrespect and stubborn pride. They turn their backs to God and refuse to listen to his words of life and faithful, loving warnings to them over and over again. And instead of listening to God and obeying him and repenting, they set up idols and defiled. They actually took idols and put them in the house of God. They defiled God's very house where he had placed his name. And lastly, they took their very children. This is something God said. This is so profane. The thought did not even cross God's mind, but they took their children and they killed their children and offered them up to these false gods. So this type of This type of sin, this type of rebellion is the difference between a child doing something wrong and receiving correction for it versus a child continually and willfully doing wrong again and again in ever increasing worse ways and doing it right in the face of their parents from birth all the way through the adult years. And then when the child is met with loving correction from their parents, they turn their bodies around. They won't even look at their parents. They refuse to listen. This is them. You're calling them up and they are blocking your number. They're not even just hanging up on you. They're blocking your number. It says you show up to their door and they're slamming the door in your face and locking it. This is, this is this sort of rebellion. And for roughly a thousand years, God had continued to love his people through some good seasons. Yes, but many seasons that were like this, this sort of rebellion that grew and grew and grew. And in this city, for roughly 400 years, he had passed over much sin there as well. The place where he made his name and presence to dwell with his people. And they were treating God this way. So time and again, they broke the covenant God made with them in more and more grievous ways, ignoring God's correction. And now the Lord of all creation was going to make good on his promise to not clear the guilty. And I just say to you, loved one sitting here, if there's even the slightest attitude like this in your heart toward God or his ways, while sitting in your seat right now, this is a grace God has given in this place that he's given us to be able to turn back to him, to be able to look to his son, Jesus, in repentance. If God is moving your heart at all, then I just encourage you to, in your seat, just to turn in repentance back to him over your sin. And don't delay. God has great wrath over our sin and either will confess it and see it laid on the shoulders of the one who hung on the cross and he will have buried it for you or will bear the consequences and punishment for that sin apart from our maker, from all eternity. God will not idly sit by and watch our selfish pride, our inward words of hostility towards people, our outward slander of others, our gossip we couch as concern for others, our boiling over anger on the inside that comes out toward others, or maybe that we manage to barely hold in. Either way, we'll pay for it ourselves and grow further and further from home, and our source of all goodness in life, or we'll turn 
to his son by faith and experience his loving correction and its inward transformation. God will either defeat sin in our lives or he'll defeat us. But this is not the end of God's response. It's not the end. Our good father joyfully promises restoration. Directly following God's response of rightful judgment over sin, he then shifts to these words of incredible, incredible hope. Just as God must defeat sin, he's also passionate about keeping his promises to bless his people. I use the word restoration for what God promises here because God uses that word in verse 44 and other places. But this is one of those times where I don't even know if there's an English word that really represents what God is doing in these promises. Because it's way better than what they had before. This is way better than common. Here it was. I'm restoring this house to look like it used to. No, this is a major upgrade. The the only word I could come up with happened to be a made up word because I didn't know what to say for it. But I call it enhanced duration. Right. This is restoration that fully enhances what it was before. This is what God is promising. And I hope these are so, these are so amazing. So I hope I can explain them to you in a way that you can fully get what God is doing for his people that he loves. So first, um, God is going to gather the people that he's driven out in his great wrath, and he's going to bring them back to the land. So all the people God has driven out in his anger and wrath, he is going to gather them and he's going to bring them back to the land. Do you remember that God's promise to Abraham, right? They were going to go to that that place and, and be servants there and then God was going to bring them back. And do you remember the way that God showed he was going to for sure make good on his promise? God himself went through the pieces showing his promise to grant Abram's descendants the land. This is that same promise God has not forgotten and will bring about. There has certainly been partial fulfillment um, of this with Cyrus's decree to send the people back to the land to build the temple and then later to rebuild the walls, but this is only partial. And you might even look at it, depending on how you look at things, as an amazing work of God to bring Jews from all over the world into the land of, of Israel. But amazing as that is too, this is, you, you could only partially see this as a, as a fulfillment. God is going to bring all of his people that are scattered from all the peoples, and he's going to have a land for them. And additionally to that, God promises he'll make them dwell in safety. The people had short stretches of this through their thousand years in the land. But this was always upended by their disobedience and rebellion to God's instructions. The God of the universe will once again be directly overseeing the safety of his people. Just think about that. We certainly don't see that today. Israel has gone through a lot. There's constantly people. And while we've seen um, ways that God throughout history has protected his people, it's, it's just not fully lived out, right, of, of what he's doing yet. God also promises, and this is maybe one of the best things, that they will be his people and he will be their God. This is a covenant language, again, between God and his people. This is adoption language. It's a, 
It's a phrase we hear about again in chapter 31 with the new covenant between God and his people. The only difference is he puts, he puts the people first in this one. They will be my people and I will be their God. He's adopted his people as his own in Christ. He's affirming they belong to him. And a major part of this we'll call it enhanced duration comes next as God promises to give them unity of heart and one way of life. This will cause them to truly stand in rightful awe and reverence of God for the good and the good of their children. So it's, it's the idea of um, giving giving his people an undivided heart that they would fear his name. It's, it's that sort of idea that God's doing in this. He's promising this. So the people will not want to turn away from God ever again. They won't, they won't be satisfied by anything else. They'll only be satisfied in him. But unlike what Jeremiah mentioned before, the fifth thing that God's now ensuring um, is that this covenant is an everlasting covenant. So there had been covenants that the people had done, but the people had broken the covenant with God. Now God is claiming this is going to be an everlasting covenant that God is guaranteeing is going to happen. He's doing the heart work. He's working to change their hearts where they won't want to go anywhere else other than God. And God says this is going to be an everlasting covenant. So there's no way his people can break it as they did the old one through their rebellion. God is saying to it perfectly that his people are changed from the inside out so that they'll never turn in rebellion again. And true freedom and life is found when we cannot possibly have our hearts and minds distracted from the one being in the whole universe we're made to know and enjoy forever. That's what true freedom and life is. And these next two promises, they, they might be the most astounding of all, at least to me. Promise six, the Lord of the universe, who is in need of nothing, says this promise about his people in verse 41, I will rejoice. This is, this is not the people will rejoice in God. That's a good thing. We're given that promise. This is God saying to us, I will rejoice in doing them good. God gets pleasure from doing good to his people. He isn't begrudgingly holding up his end of the agreement. Just like in Zephaniah 3.17, the holy, mighty, eternal God rejoices to do us good. It's the Father's pleasure to do good to his people. Spurgeon said it like this, Our God does not give us his mercies offhand as we see a man flitting a penny to a beggar. No, he blesses us with his whole heart and his whole soul. He rejoices to do us good. And lastly, Almighty God says something I don't believe is found anywhere else in all the scripture. I think this is unique. At the end of verse 41, he promises, I will plant them in this land of faithfulness and listen to his passion for this with all my heart. In all my soul. God of heaven, heaven and earth, is going to plant his people in the land in faithfulness so that nothing will take them from it. They're going to always have a place. They're always going to have um, 
present, his presence with them, and he's going to do this, take them and plant them there forever with all that he is, all his heart and all his soul. And so the question is, let's go to part three. There's, there's only one way for bad figs to be regarded as good. How can that be? Because if you haven't noticed, all of us in our sin, all of us are sinners. We're the bad figs. How can bad figs be made good? How can they have this love of God poured out on them? God's passion for his people to be planted in faithfulness is all his heart and heart and soul. How can this happen? Well, the just judge himself in his mercy made a way for sinners, for bad figs to be counted good and right before God. And that righteous judge came himself in the person of Jesus Christ. He was sent from his good father and he came willingly with all his heart and all his soul to live out a life of complete obedience to God. Complete. Nothing was missing. It was completely perfect. He willingly came to do that. Live in that spotless life and do what we failed to do. And he experienced the full judgment. The just judge took the judgment for us. He took the judgment we deserved in his death on the cross. And his death was enough to cover any sinner who will look to him in faith. Any sinner, no matter how far off you've been away from God, no matter what you have done, those things that you would never share with a soul for as long as you live that you know that you're guilty of, Jesus knows those things and went to the cross so that if you will look to him, you can be forgiven. You can be counted as a good fig, not because of anything you've done, but because of all of the work that he's done in your place for you. It counts for you. This just judge has been given all authority. So today, it it means the same. There's similarities here. It means turning to Jesus, right? Because he is the servant that God lifted up to be the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's been given authority over not just a large region of the earth for a limited period of time, but he's been given authority of all heaven and all earth for all times. He is the eternal king and the only redeemer. And he alone can change us, change our hearts from bad figs destined for eternal destruction. We're we're destined to be away from God forever, away from all the goodness that he has for us. And yet he, he came so that we can be forgiven and be with God and forgiven. He alone can change us from those bad figs. All the promises of God, all the promises of God that we've heard about today and more, they all find their yes in Jesus, all of them. He's the good shepherd gathering his sheep from all places of the world who also laid down his life so that every sheep may dwell in safety. He has given us a new heart by his spirit so we'll never turn from him. The father is determined to do good to us forever because in us he sees his own son. So in Jesus, the father rejoices. The father rejoices to do you good. If you are in Christ, there is a land and city 
to which you belong. You have citizenship there. Make sure then that the citizenship is better and more sure than the name on your birth certificate. It's more certain than the current residence and address that you have. Because as Christ Jesus' beloved child, when you trust in him, you have a permanent citizenship whose documents can't be forged, turned to ash by fire, or manipulated by any hacker. The God of the universe, the one who created you, who chose you to be there with him before the foundations of the world. God, the Father Almighty, saw it that you, chosen long ago, would be rescued through the very sacrifice of his only son and drawn by his spirit and faith to believe. He has given us new hearts that are made more and more into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus, so that we can fulfill that great creation mandate to fill the earth and subdue it, to be fruitful and multiply, to know God and reflect what he's truly like. With all his heart and all his soul, Christ came to rescue his father's people and his bride and bring them to their eternal land and city, not made with hands, a place where God will dwell with his people in safety. And remember his son's words. You remember these words? These are such words that you always hear in churches, especially at funerals. But think about these words of Jesus in John 14. I go to prepare a place for you. For you. So for those of you listening who are not certain where you would be if Jesus were to return today, turn and look and believe in Jesus. Would you neglect and turn away from such a love like this? Would you turn away from the Lord of the universe who loves you and promises to all believers a home and a place with him, with all of his heart and all of his soul? Let's pray together.